Do not be alarmed, Royce Oatman would say, attempting to calm and reassure his family. The Indians won't harm you, end quote. They had just fed them bread, but shortly thereafter, they demanded more food. When Royce explained that they could spare no more food for the sake of their children, without warning, the small band of Yavapai bludgeoned the patriarch of the family. The oldest son, Lorenzo, would be struck on the back of the head and tossed over the edge of the bluff by his feet. Marianne, the mother, heavy with child, and the youngest, Roland, were hidden in the wagon, but it couldn't save them. They were pulled from the wagon and murdered. 11-year-old Royce Jr. was taken down with a single blow. Little Marianne, her mother's namesake, sat on the ground crying into her hands. 14-year-old Olive and sister Lucy were momentarily pushed to the side. The youngest girl, Charity Ann, was murdered right in front of them. Lucy fell to the ground in hysterics and her skull was bludgeoned. As Olive watched the blood spray and her family fall around her, her head spun, her vision blurred, and she fainted. Once the Indians stripped the family members of their clothing and shoes, they looted the wagon, disassembling it, taking what they wanted. Of the Oatman family, mother, father, and seven children, only Olive and young Marianne had been spared and taken hostage. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. It was in May of 1850 when the Oatman family joined the Mormon Trail to begin a new life in California. They had broken away from the safety of the other families they traveled with in a rash, unadvised decision, and it would be their undoing. And now, the two Oatman girls were captives of the Yavapai. Olive and Marianne were forced to run at an unbearable pace across what is now New Mexico with no shoes on their tender feet. Olive would later write, quote, Mangled as I knew they were, I longed to go back and take one look, one long last farewell look in the faces of my parents, end quote. The Oatman massacre was actually out of character for the Yavapai in general. They preferred to steer clear of the white race, but were not above scavenging through the things that they would inevitably leave behind. Margot Mifflin, author of the book The Blue Tattoo, believes that the unusual attack on the emigrants was most likely because they had had a drought a year before and were struggling through the winter. Their families were starving. The Oatman family was traveling alone, making them an easy target. But why they took the two children is still a curiosity, because it would mean two more mouths to feed. And from the moment the bloody deed was done, the Yavapai feared retribution from the white man. And now they had two little faces reminding them daily of what they had done and how the whites would not take kindly to it. Once they arrived at the village, their purpose was clear. They were to be slaves of the women and children. The two sisters were forced to do the menial tasks as well as the back-breaking chores that were sometimes reserved for men. And they were to do it without complaining. Olive would later write, quote, the women took unwarranted delight in whipping us beyond our strength, end quote. After several months with the small tribe, the two sisters began to learn the language and were able to have conversations. 
Around this time, their harsh treatment had softened. Olive would say, quote, They became more lenient and merciful, especially with my sister. She always met their abuse with a mild, patient spirit and deportment. End quote. Mary Ann was more frail than her sister, Olive, and although she wouldn't complain, Olive could see that she was getting weaker by the day. They were given scraps to live on and whatever roots they could hide for themselves. The Yavapai tribe, as time ticked on, began to be more and more afraid of being discovered with the two white children. They were terrified that the whites would seek revenge for the killing of the white travelers, and much discussion was made whether to keep, trade, or kill the white prisoners. In spring of 1852, the Mojave came to trade with the Yavapai. They were interested in taking the girls. To Marianne, the Mojave seemed to be more, quote, intelligent in appearance and seemed to live better, end quote. Olive was afraid that the Mojave traders were just putting on a front and living with them might be even worse. But Marianne would say, quote, that would be impossible without them killing us. And if we cannot escape, the sooner we die, the better, end quote. The deal was done. In exchange for two horses, three blankets, vegetables, and beads, the two white girls were traded to the Mojave. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi deodorant. But today, we are not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. If we can suspend the narrative of Olive and her sister for just a moment, I wanted to bring forward a sort of plot twist. It requires us returning to the original scene of the massacre. On the night of the massacre, there was a full moon, and had anyone been in the vicinity to witness it, the gruesome display of bodies lay perfectly still, basking in its glow, like a macabre sort of oil painting. The wolves were drawn to the scene, but were still unsure, so they hovered nearby, calling out to one another, slowly inching forward. The boy, Lorenzo, if you recall, was thrown from the mesa after being struck in the head and assumed dead, but for some reason, Lorenzo fought back against the eternal night. The oldest of the Altman children blinked through the dried and caked blood on his lashes, not wanting to believe he was still on earth. His head ached in pain, and he could feel warm blood leaking from somewhere. His head, his ears. The desert was still and quiet, with the exception of a wolf's howl. This is where he would die. Tried as he might not to think about the events that brought him to this moment, he couldn't shut out the sight of his family being violently bludgeoned to death. He could still hear their screams. He closed his eyes again, giving in to the vision. This is where he would die. But in the morning... The sun would beckon him not to give up, and he tried. 
he felt the flap of skin barely covering his skull, and his head pounded in pain with every movement. He rolled to his side and attempted to get on his hands and knees. After several attempts, he had managed to crawl or drag his way back up the hill to the original scene. He found some scraps of bread and attempted to keep them down. He lay for a time among the remains of his family and their belongings, hoping that he would be allowed to stop. But a sudden fear of being discovered by the Indians was worth the effort to keep going. He decided to follow the trail back the way they had come. He found a stick to aid him in walking upright, but it was slow going. He rested when he found shade and continued one step at a time, fighting off the curious wolves by tossing rocks and swinging his stick. He was soon discovered by two Pima Indians who had been of help to the wagon trains and gave Lorenzo some water and ash bread. They let him rest on a blanket they provided while they investigated the tragedy at the Mesa. When they returned to Lorenzo, they brought along a few of the family's belongings that they thought he would treasure and told him that they covered the remains of his family with rocks to protect them. The Pima agreed to help him get back to his people, and along the way, two wagons from their original group appeared in the distance. As they listened in horror and sadness to the details of the night, only three days prior, all in the party decided to turn back and winter in Maricopa Wells. Eventually, the Mormon party that took pity on Lorenzo did finally make it to California. This is where everyone went their own ways, and Lorenzo convalesced under the care of Dr. Hewitt until he was strong enough to search for his sisters. He was certain in his repetitive dreams that his sister Olive had been taken, and since little Marianne's body hadn't been found, he believed she had been kidnapped as well. He tried following the required procedures, reaching out to the captain at Fort Yuma and even to the governor of California, but no one believed that the girls could still be alive and did not want to extend the manpower just to prove that they were right. But there was one man, Henry Grinnell. Grinnell was a carpenter that befriended Lorenzo. When Dr. Hewitt had to move his practice to San Francisco, Lorenzo, who viewed Dr. Hewitt as a father figure, traveled with him. Lorenzo would say of Dr. Hewitt, quote, He became a parent to me, at a time when, but for his counsel and his affectionate oversight, I might have turned out to wreck upon the cold world, end quote. Seeing how it pained his friend to have to leave the search for his family, Grinnell promised to keep ever vigilant on any news of Olive or Marianne. Little did he know that before moving to San Francisco, Lorenzo was less than 250 miles away from his sisters. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you. Quote, I often felt 
as though it would be a sad relief to see her sink into the grave, but there were times when she would enliven after a rest. Olive would later write about her frail younger sister, quote, I painly saw that grief or want of food, or both, were slowly and inch by inch enfeebling and wasting away Marianne, end quote. In 1855, the harvest and gathering for the Mojaves was especially bleak. The crops had not produced and they were reduced to eating berries that they had to scavenge and mesquite root mush. There were many days that the people of the tribe would go full days without eating. Marianne had been frail her entire life and most days it would seem that she would fight it off, but to go without food was wearing her body down quickly. Olive would write, quote, had it not been for the wife and daughter of the chief, we could have obtained nothing. They seemed to really feel for us, and I have no doubt would have done more if in their power. End quote. The Mojave people were dying. Mary Ann knew she wasn't long for the earth and accepted it graciously, telling her sister, quote, Don't grieve for me. I have been a care to you all the while. I don't like to leave you alone, but God is with you. End quote. And within three days, Marianne died with Olive and the chief by her side. It was the custom of the Mojave to cremate their dead, but they had so much respect and affection for Olive and her sister, they agreed to bury her according to Olive's customs. Quote, they dug a grave about five feet deep, and into it they gently lowered the remains of my last, my only sister, and closed her last resting place with sand. End quote. The drought and famine took the lives of many Mojave that summer, and Olive was tempted to be one of them. Quote, I was rapidly drooping, she would write, becoming more and more anxious to shut my eyes to all about me and sink into a sweet, untroubled sleep beneath that green carpeted valley. This was the only time in which, without reserve, I really longed to die. End quote. Her Mojave mother saved her life. By giving up some of her own rations and digging up an emergency storage of cornmeal, she nursed her adopted daughter back to health. Olive became strong once again under the watchful eye of the wife of the chief and went about her duties to forage for food and help others. Once her health was back to normal and her grieving had softened, she realized that as Margot Mifflin, her book The Blue Tattoo, would write, quote, her last tie to the white world now severed, she was a Mojave. End quote. Quote, I saw but little reason to expect anything else than the spending of my years among them, and I had no anxiety that they should be many, Olive would write. She came to love the valley she lived in and would at rare times admit to her attachment to many of the people she shared her daily life with. Meanwhile, back in San Francisco, Lorenzo had again been orphaned when Dr. Hewitt decided to move east, leaving the boy behind. He was 16. An uncle on his mother's side had only just heard about the terrible circumstances of his sister and her family and reached out to find Lorenzo and encourage him to travel east to Illinois to come back to the fold of his family. To his credit, Lorenzo declined the offer for safety and security and decided to stay in California dedicated to the search for his sisters. He would tell his uncle that his nightmares are riddled with the screams of his mother and family on that fateful night and he was thrown down the hill, writing, quote, It was by a miracle that I escaped, end quote. He felt duty-bound to find his sisters. He earned enough money to go to school to learn to read and write, knowing that much of his battle would be through writing letters. 
He implored government officials and responded to every lead that was presented to him, finding most to be dead ends and some to be outright fabrications. In January of 1856, a Kichawan Indian that went by his Spanish name Francisco would approach Lorenzo's old friend Henry Grinnell. He claimed to know where the captured girls were and promised that if Grinnell would give him, quote, four blankets and some beads, I will bring her in just 20 days, end quote. The Lieutenant Colonel Martin Burke, who was commanding Fort Yuma at the time, wrote out a pass for Francisco demanding that the white woman be allowed to come to Fort Yuma or, quote, send her reasons why she does not want to come, end quote. As Olive was safely tucked away within the Mojave camp, the tribal leaders held meetings for two days after Francisco's arrival. The main chief of the Mojave was called Espanol, told the messenger, quote, I would like to raise this girl. We traveled far to buy her. We like her, and we want to make friends through her. When those who come by us know how we treat her, they will treat us well too. If the officers want to see her, they had better come here and talk with me. End quote. The chief had spoken. Olive would stay. Francisco was not beaten, not just yet. He went a ways down the river to seek counsel with another tribe of Mojave, and they suggested that he go back and offer to purchase the girl. So Francisco went back again, armed with a new tactic. At first, the tribal leaders didn't want to see him, but the council leaders were curious as to what he would say. This time, Olive was allowed to be present at the meeting. She admitted to recognizing the man, seeing him a few months earlier, and now assumed that's how the whites knew where to find her. Francisco tried his new plan. He offered a white horse, some blankets, and some beads in trade for her. This new twist in Francisco's method of obtaining the girl concerned the Mojave, they thought perhaps that he was planning on keeping her for himself and not taking her back to the whites at all. This accusation infuriated Francisco, and he challenged that if they didn't believe him, they were welcome to follow him to see where he delivered the girl. But then, in his fury, he told the Mojave leaders that the white men were watching them from the mountains even as they spoke, and if they didn't return the white woman back to her people, they would seize the village and kill them all as well as all the surrounding Indians. The Mojave were silent. They were struck with the thought that the lives of all of their people would be on this one single decision, and they did believe the whites to be capable of such a threat. It was decided then. Olive would be traded back to her people for two horses, some blankets, and beads. Olive could not say a word, but expressed her sadness by tears streaming down her face. Her adopted mother cried for days over the loss of her white daughter. Olive would later wrote about her Mojave family's reactions to her being led away, quote, Some laughed derisively, as if to say, Oh, you feel very finely now, don't you? Others stood and gazed upon me with a steady, serious look, as if taking more interest in my welfare than ever before. Still others seemed to stand in wonder as to where I would be going, and some were genuinely happy for me, end quote. As a mother of grown daughters, and with me traveling alone across the country, personal safety is always on my mind. I am always aware of my surroundings, I always let my people know where and when I'm going places, but to add that extra level of safety, I am never unprotected. Thanks to Damsel in Defense, I have several options for my personal safety, 
and can I just say, they are super cute. But don't think that just because they have bling that they won't do some damage to allow you to get to safety. And Damsel in Defense has thought of everything. DNA grab, GPS alerts, and easy to carry and access should the need ever arise. For your safety and all the women in your sphere, I beg you to check out these amazing products at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. The trip back to civilization took ten days. The chief's daughter and a few of her closest Mojave family made the trip with her. She took a hyacinth root with her to represent her sister's garden, packed food and blankets, and at sunrise the next morning, she left her Mojave home forever. On their final night of travels, Francisco sent ahead one of his men to tell Henry Grinnell that they were almost there. He requested a calico dress be sent to Olive before they had to enter the fort with her in her Mojave garb. When Grinnell heard that they had arrived, he immediately crossed the river to go to her. There he saw for the first time the 19-year-old white captive sitting cross-legged on the ground wearing nothing but a bark skirt. This showed that her skin was tanned and had tattoos on each arm made of vertical blue lines. Her hair was dyed black, and she covered her face in her hands while being surrounded by dozens of the local Kichawan Indians. Grinnell went to her and allowed her to cry into her hands before he gently reached out to touch her. She said nothing, but allowed him to direct her to the river where she washed away her face paint and the colored mud in her hair. She then put on a dress he acquired from an officer's wife at the fort. It was time for her to step back into civilization. As they breached the entrance to the fort, she was startled by the cannons being set off. Crowds of soldiers and even Kichawan settlers cheered for her, and all she could do was mourn the loving community she had left behind and fear for the uncertainty of her future. She would be debriefed and cared for in Grinnell's cabin by the commander of Fort Yuma, who took many notes realizing that her comprehension of the English language had lapsed a great deal although the more they chatted, the more it seemed to return. Before leaving, Commander Burke told her of her brother Lorenzo's being alive after escaping that night and assured her that he would send word to him promptly. She was so stunned to hear the news, she asked to lie down and appeared to be in a trance-like state. Meanwhile, the news grabbed hold of this story and sent it far and wide. It would take weeks for it to reach Lorenzo, and people and organizations were responding via newspapers how they were willing to help, so concerned for her welfare to, quote, wean her from all savage tastes or desire to return to Indian life, end quote. The Star would report, quote, she was rather a pretty girl with an amiable disposition, end quote, but had been disfigured by, quote, tattooed lines on the chin, end quote. They also took on the question that everybody wanted to ask, but no one else was reporting by saying, quote, she had not been made a wife, and her defenseless situation entirely respected during her residence among the Indians, end quote. The papers assured their curious readers that Olive had not been raped. Even Olive knew that they would be more accepting to her return if she was presented as a lady, but all the more pitiable when they printed stories such as, quote, 
People rush to see her and stare at her with about as much sense of feeling as they would to a show of wild animals, end quote. They also noted that she was patient with the unwelcome detention, but seemed to understand that she was, quote, an object of curiosity, end quote. Olive had no idea what was happening outside the confines of the fort where the soldiers pooled their money to care for her. When the newspapers finally reached Lorenzo and he learned of the ransom paid, he said, quote, I now thought I saw a realization in part of my long-cherished hopes. I saw no mention of Mary Ann and at once concluded that the first report obtained by Fort Yuma was probably sadly true, that but one was alive, end quote. Ten days later after hearing the news, Lorenzo and his sister were finally reunited. Olive was constantly requested to give interviews and her original language became once again familiar. She chatted with several reporters, both who wanted to know for scientific purposes and those who wanted sensational stories. She learned quickly to censure much of what she related, keeping many of her memories, trials, and true feelings hidden deep inside. Cousins of theirs, Henry and Harrison Oatman, had settled in Gasburg, Oregon, which is now where Phoenix, Arizona is. They had invited Olive and Lorenzo to come and stay with them. They accepted and were now embraced by a family neither had known for some time. But it was also here that Olive would become entangled with a young, smooth-talking Methodist minister, Royal Byron Stratton, and his interference and meddling would change their lives forever. While it is true that Lorenzo did request that Stratton pen their biography, focusing mostly on Olive's ordeal, what Stratton did instead was mostly fictional. At the time, both Oatman's educational level was not competent enough to catch the divisiveness before it would become a sensation and lined the pockets of the author. Margot Mifflin would state in her book, quote, Stratton omitted, exaggerated, and fabricated information in order to deliver a title that was at once pious and titillating for his publisher, Witten, Town, and Company, end quote. Mifflin did an amazing job of analyzing the work of Stratton to reveal his heavy-handedness with every reading, it became less of Olive's story and more of, quote, religious sentiment intended to remind readers that faith carried the girls through their ordeal and elevated them above an untutored and demoralized tribe of savages, end quote. Mifflin noted how the book Stratton created, supposedly quoting Olive, greatly differed from all of Olive's previous interviews and even interviews others surrounding her ordeal that were obtained later in life. She made it very clear about how she was treated and even loved by the Mojave. Other accounts of the Mojave culture have repeatedly said that they are kind and generous, bathed every day, and were very athletic. But it is noted in Stratton's book, as if Olive said it, the Mojaves were, quote, filthy-looking and lazy unemotional people believed to be insensitive and lacking in human feelings, end quote. Even in the letters she wrote to Stratton describing her life with the Mojaves, she told of her adopted sister as mild and sympathizing. Of her adopted father, she would write of him that he was gentle and accommodating, especially when it came to Marianne's burial, and telling the story again of how her adopted mother saved her life and cried for a day and a half at her having to leave. But... By the time Stratton got a hold of it, he belittled the three most important Mojave relationships she had, and Mifflin says, quote, Furthermore, Stratton was an abolitionist 
who saw no conflict between moralizing about the emancipation of blacks in his sermons and championing the suppression of Indians in his book. End quote. Mifflin even found dangerously close similarities to another book of white captives that had become a bestseller as early as 1620. She discovered that many of the lines were merely a word or two away from direct plagiarism. The book goes on with an uncharacteristic barbarism in which the Mojave never participated in. Poison arrows, crucifixions, Torturing victims are all things the book attributes to Olive's horrifying memories of living with the Mojave savages. Mifflin writes that, quote, Stratton's fantasy was a heady blend of racial superiority, religious authority, and territorial entitlement, which required tampering the powerful feelings Olive sure felt about the Mojaves after four formative years with them, end quote. Mifflin notes that Olive even if she was aware of any, all, or some of the liberties, really had no control of the book's production. It was explained to her that the only way she would have any chances of resuming her quote-unquote position in society was that she couldn't show too much sympathy for the work of the devil, which, of course, are the Indians here, so she was stifled. Mifflin says it perfectly, quote, Olive was once again captive, this time of her ghostwriter, end quote. On February 1st, 1857, Lorenzo borrowed money to print the first 5,000 copies of Life Among the Indians. Every copy sold out within three weeks. A second printing, altering the title now called Captive of the Oatman Girls, a few new illustrations, and even more of a shift to the white victimization, published 6,000 copies. And then, after much success, Stratton decided to take the siblings to New York. There, a third edition of the book was printed with 26,000 copies. This version included a 59-page section written by Stratton of, quote, peculiar traditions and superstitions of tribes, end quote, which Mifflin retorts with, quote, they more accurately reflected the superstitions whirling around in his own mind, end quote. Stratton had scheduled several lectures where he was the main speaker, and Olive was present to occasionally offer stories of her oppressed and horrifying time as a captive. But by the 1860s, the lecture scene had turned on its head. Now Olive Oatman was the headliner, accompanied by her editor. She had a script in which she read from, written in Stratton's style, reflecting his craft as an entertaining speaker and minister. The audiences were enthralled, and Olive would write to her aunt about back-to-back lectures and days and days of travel. She began to have trouble with her eyes, they would cause her great pain and headaches, and she would sometimes have to postpone her lectures because she could do nothing but rest with her eyes closed. Even though she had offers from family to take care of her and pay for her schooling, she chose not to have to rely on someone else for her care and gave in to the idea that lecturing, even though falsely, would support her. She had no reason to believe that anyone would love her beyond her tattoo and marry her, so she continued with Stratton wherever he led. A copy of her written lecture template was discovered, and it's pretty much confirmed that it was written by Stratton, as some of the lines are taken directly from his book. Side note, in 1864, one of the Mojave leaders, Eradaba, that, according to her lectures, held Olive captive and treated her as a slave, 
beating her and scarring her with horrid facial deformity, showed up in New York. He was invited by President Lincoln and shown about the country so he could go back to his people and tell them how vast and mighty the white numbers are and how it would be best to talk peace instead of war. Olive took a train to see him, and when they met, she rushed to clasp his hand. She spoke freely and lovingly, asking many questions in his native tongue. For someone who told the masses that she was so abused, she did not shy away from her abuser. It was quite the opposite. And it was this meeting, I believe, that made her question everything she was doing and everything she had said about her life in the company of the Mojave. From here, her life changes, and she openly writes about her depression and loneliness. She had sold out her memories and affection for the Mojave people by the time she had begun giving lectures, and she tells her rapt audience that she and her sister were slaves to both the Yavapai and the Mojave. She tells them that her tattoo was applied to all slaves so they could be recognized if they escaped. Personally, it broke my heart that she sold out the people that treated her with kindness and adopted her as her own. I would have been happier believing that she had been duped, which initially she was, but I'd rather she had stayed ignorant of the whole fiasco instead of taking part in it. The distortion, as Mifflin puts it, of how she received her tattoo also removes the story that it was the tattoo that actually made her a Mojave. Quote, It negates a larger truth, Mifflin writes. The Mojave did not tattoo their captives. They tattooed their own. End quote. In the end, she did what she felt she had to do. She was not given the choice to stay or go after being acclimated to the Mojave way of life. Despite the things she said in her lectures only a few short years earlier, she was a girl crying as she was returned, lost sleep and paced the floors nightly, and not being allowed to say that she missed the people who loved her unconditionally despite her pale skin. It may have been self-preservation that led her to betray the Mojave, and do not hear judgment under my words, it truly is sadness. The celebrity, which disguised itself as social acceptance, and the income, which was thrust at her, was considered acceptable, so much more so than admitting that she loved and missed her Indian family. By declaring such a thing would ostracize her from her own kind. At this very same time across the country, what Olive didn't know was that the Mojave tribe and its beloved green carpeted valley had been wiped from the map. The tribes were divided into two Indian reservations, one in Phoenix and the other near Needles, California. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Aisle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. Lorenzo Oltman had snuck away from Stratton and all the traveling after having met a young servant girl on one of his visits to Illinois. They were married and bought a farm in Minnesota. They had four sons, two who died in the same winter of scarlet fever. A third had been thrown from the wagon and killed, and the fourth, the surviving son, was named after Stratton, Royal Fairchild Oatman. The couple gave up farming and moved to Montana and then to Nebraska, finding success as hotel and restaurant owners. Lorenzo died when he was 65. A press piece in the Red Cloud Chief printed, quote, He was one of the best-known hotel men in the valley, end quote. 
and it was in 1864 when John Brant Fairchild saw Olive Oatman at one of her lectures in Farmington, Michigan. He was so smitten with her that he invited her to visit his home. He proposed, and she accepted. They were married in Rochester, New York, in November of 1864. Olive gave up her lecturing career, settled into farm life in Michigan, and then to Texas, claiming they were the happiest years of her life. Olive had separated herself from Stratton without warning, explanation, or even revealing herself to be married. Stratton went on with his preaching, but faced with scandal against his character, true or not, destroyed his reputation and place in the Methodist Church. Not long after, he discovered his 20-year-old son had committed suicide. This tragedy would be his undoing. Only a year prior, the couple had a third son, but by 1872, Stratton would be designated quote-unquote insane and committed to a mental institution. In 1875, at the age of 48, Stratton died. His obituary stated his death being attributed to quote, paralysis of the brain, end quote. Olive thrived at first in her role as Mrs. Fairchild. In her letters, she gushed about meeting and marrying a man that had all the attributes she desired in a husband. She was giddy at the prospect of finding someone who would love her and accept her just the way she is, tattoos and all. The community knew of her past but politely ignored it, and even though she wore a veil around town, stayed reclusive, she was active in charities and ran her household. She was and always will be remembered as the Indian captive. The couple went on to adopt a three-week-old orphan, which they named Mary Elizabeth, and Olive did a great deal of work and cared for many children from the orphanage. But when Mamie, as they called her, turned six, Olive complained of her vision issues and severe headaches and depression. She would spend several months in a spa-type sanitarium near Niagara Falls. And it was at this time, according to the press, she died. Writer of the Arizona travelogue, Picturesque Arizona, E.J. Conklin took it upon himself to write that she had died of depression in an insane asylum. It's bad enough that her time with the Mojave Indians had become one giant falsehood and unfortunately perpetrated much by herself, which is said by many may have been a reason that she suffered from such depression. But she certainly did not die there. The story was such a perfect fictional ending, though, the papers couldn't let it go. Or, I don't know, fact check. The story was picked up by well-known historian Hubert L. Bancroft, and he published his own version in two of his books in 1882 and 1889. Even the preface of The Captivity of the Oatman Girls was also updated to include her fictitious death in 1935 which was decades after her real death. Olive never spoke of her past, and in her later years after Mamie had grown, she had become even more reclusive, battling depression and loneliness. A family friend would recall, quote, I used to sit by the fire when a child, watching Mrs. Fairchild and admiring her kind and gentle ways. Her sweet face was surrounded by white hair like a halo. The tattoo had faded to a pale blue, and, of course, I was so used to seeing it, I didn't even notice it anymore, end quote. In 1903, a heart attack finally took her life. Her obituaries in the local papers made no mention of her history or the Oatman Massacre. 
And if you're interested, I'll tell you what I learned about the tattoo itself if you will oblige me one last supporter break. Hello listeners, we're Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. While the story of a child taken captive by an Indian tribe is interesting on its own, and surprisingly there are many stories, many I'm sure you'll hear about on the podcast at some point in time, but what made Olive's story so unique was a couple of things. First, that she was able to become a member of the tribe, to where she had opportunity to leave, but chose to stay. And then, when returned unwillingly, was able to reinvent herself once again in the white community despite great odds stacked against her. And the second thing is the tattoo itself. I found myself doing a lot of additional research just on the Mojave and the Yavapai tribes and their culture in tattooing, and I thought you might be interested as well. The Yavapai, which were the first tribe that Olive and Marianne lived with, these were the people that killed her family and made them slaves, abusing them unmercifully. This would have been the first time the Oatman sisters would be introduced to face tattoos and face painting. The entire Yavapai tribe, males and females, participated in face painting, from the practical, the black under the eyes to help them see, to decorative swirls on the cheeks, to zigzags across the forehead, and so on. Most boys had facial tattoos in their mid-teens. It would be considered a rite of passage. Tattoos held deeper meaning for the women. The chin tattoos were received between puberty and marriage. The tattoos indicated that they were permitted to marry. For the Yavapai, I couldn't find out if it was mandatory for the women or voluntary, but eventually they would want to be inked, because in their culture they believed that their tattoos would help them be identified by their ancestors in the land of the dead. Even if they had never met them and they had walked the earth decades before the deceased, they would be welcomed in because of the recognition of the tattoos. Olive and Marianne were captives. They were slaves and barely consequential. They didn't care if their souls wandered lost in all eternity, so the Yavapai didn't concern themselves with tattooing for the help. But the Mojave tribes did accept the girls into the tribes as family, and that was the only way they would have been given the opportunity to get the chin tattoo. Like the Yavapai, the women only are tattooed once they reach puberty, but if they're not ready, they can wait until they are. It was a year after the Oatman girls were with the Mojave, had learned their language, learned their ways, they were officially welcomed into the Mojave family, no longer as a captive, but to become Mojave. One afternoon, their guardian, one of the chiefs, had told them to go into the yard and get their tattoos. They belonged to the tribe now, and it was time. They laid down on the grass and put their head in the laps of the tattoo artists. Olive would write that while using a cactus thorn to prick straight rows from the bottom lip to their chin until they bled freely, quote, they dipped the same sticks in the juice of a certain weed that grew on the banks of the river, and then in the powder of a blue stone that was to be found in low water, end quote. She said that the procedure itself wasn't as painful as the following days of its healing. 
they would only be able to eat soft food so as not to stretch the healing tender skin. When completed, Olive's tattoo was made up of five vertical lines that began at the edge of her bottom lip and traveled down to the bend of her chin. There were also two horizontal peaks or triangles, colored in one on either side pointing toward her ear. Margot Mifflin mentions in her book, The Blue Tattoo, quote, Whether she wanted the tattoo or not, the clean lines of Olive's pattern indicate that she cooperated thoroughly with both the process and the aftercare it required, end quote. Marianne was tattooed as well on the same day as her sister, but her pattern was never documented as a drawing or in writing. In the culture of the Mojave, getting the tattoo was not a requirement and was never forced. So by Olive allowing herself to be tattooed, firmly placed one foot on each side of her life. Where she was currently, she would always be looked at as different because of the color of her skin. But with the tattoo, she was accepted as family. If she was ever to be rescued, she knew that her tattooed appearance would make her an outcast, a savage, even though she was with the people she was born to. And believing that it was only she and her sister that remained of her family and the mixed beliefs of the afterlife from both worlds, she had to wonder what this permanent, very visible statement would mean for the rest of her life. But then again, teenagers very much live in the moment. Side note, Olive unwittingly made history that day with her chin tattoo of being the first known white female tattooed in the United States. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bag of Bones, and I have my mother, Barbara Bougeret, to thank for requesting it. Olive Oatman had come up several times in our conversations, and when I told her I was accepting requests from listeners, she said, I'm a listener. I want to hear about the tattooed chin girl. So, I guess that made it official. Well, thanks, Mom. It was a great choice. We have only a couple of listener request episodes left before we fall back to our regularly scheduled season which I hope you will enjoy as much as these. Just so you know, your requests are always welcome. You can reach out to me on Facebook or at Instagram at Bag of Bones Podcast, or email me from my website, www.elizabethbougeret.com. I guess that wraps up this episode. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.